0: I wanna, before we begin the message for this morning, I wanna go back to a verse from last week. In First Corinthians chapter 15, we talked about the resurrection, and I've had several people ask me a similar question, which tells me that perhaps I was not altogether clear or didn't address it thoroughly enough, and I wanna make sure that you understand what the Apostle Paul means in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, where he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now I've had several people ask me about sleeping and what that means. And when we read the word sleep in the New Testament, uh, Jesus used it, the Apostle Paul used it, and in fact, it became very common in the New Testament and then following the New Testament in the early church for followers of Christ to refer to death as sleep. The reason they did this was not the reason the jehovah 's witness do that, which I think has caused some people a little confusion because they understand when the apostle says something like sleep that it means something like soul sleep, which is another doctrine entirely, not a christian doctrine it 's a cult doctrine, and it 's the idea that when you die, you are unconscious until you come back to life again later on that 's not what the church teaches the Christian church teaches the, uh, the understanding of the New Testament from Uh, the early Christian church has been that when a person dies, they are aware and that they are with the Lord. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that when we die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so when they used the term sleep, it was not to indicate that you are unconscious. It was a euphemism for death by which they softened what people typically mean by death, which is the end. No more. It's over. Nobody's coming back. But sleep indicates that you will wake up one day. And so they used sleep as the euphemism to indicate that when you die, it is not the end, but that at the resurrection, Christ will raise you from the dead bodily, and you will live with him forever." And so, along with that, I also want to emphasize something else, which I think is an even bigger misconception, and I did address it last week, but I still think that many people have a hard time grasping this because of how prevalent it is in our culture, as well as even in the church sometimes. In fact, just this past week, I was listening to a podcast of two believers who were talking, and one of them commented that he wasn't particularly afraid to die because he knows that when he dies, he'll go and be with Jesus forever, And of course, that's true in some sense, but it's not exactly how the New Testament puts it. In fact, the New Testament says very, very little about what happens between your death and your resurrection. It says about this much. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Make of that what you will. Jesus says this to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. But those are the only two statements we really have in the New Testament that tell us what goes on in between death and death. And resurrection. So you can, you can speculate, you can surmise, but understand all you're doing is speculating because you don't know any more than those two statements. What the New Testament emphasizes is this. That the very reason Jesus needed to be incarnated as a human being, that he became flesh, that he was Emmanuel and is Emmanuel God with us, the reason that when he died, God raised him from the dead, was to give us the hope, not that we would float away as immaterial beings and we would kind of exist in some kind of who knows what forever in some other place, but that indeed, that one day the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised bodily, never to perish again. That is, that just as Christ will be ra- was raised from the dead, you will be raised as well. Your body will be different. The Apostle Paul said, we read it in First Corinthians 15, that it will be raised a spiritual body. It was sown natural. It will be raised spiritual. It was sown perishable. It will be raised imperishable. It was sown in weakness. It will be raised in power or in strength. So it'll be a different body, but it will be a body nonetheless. That is the Christian teaching of the resurrection. And I want to make sure that you understand that, because I hear a lot, I mean a lot of Christians go about talking about dying and going to heaven. When what the Bible actually teaches us, and First Peter teaches this, is that one day when God is, when God is, is reigning as king because Jesus has come back, that he will burn up the current earth And the current heavens, by which he means the stars and the moon and all of those things in outer space, he'll burn up the earth and the heavens. They'll be rolled up like a scroll, he says, and then he will remake them. Now, why in the world would he remake the earth unless he's going to raise us from the dead bodily to inhabit the earth, the new earth and the new heavens forever and ever and ever and ever? And this is the teaching of the, of the church. And so I wanted to be clear about that because there are a lot of Christians when their, their belief about life after death is borderline pagan because the pagans taught that there's some kind of mystical afterlife in which you, you get rid of your body because your body is bad and you float around somewhere for eternity or you become one with the subconscious of the universe, or or something like that. That's a pagan teaching, it's not the teaching of the church. The teaching of the church is this, that God made the world, he made it good. He made men and women, he made us good. And when he saw that he had created us, he said it was very good. And so the teaching is of the church, that one day he will remake us as we were supposed to be without sin, without the defilement of sin, without the, the pull of temptation, and we will be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And even further, so often we sing songs about flying away, going somewhere else. But in fact, the, the emphasis of the New Testament is not that we go away to be with God, but that God comes to be with us In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, it doesn't say we go away to be with God somewhere. It says, then I saw the new Jerusalem descending from heaven and resting on the earth, and so God dwelled among his people. This is the hope we have in Jesus, that he has come to rescue us, not that we will float on a cloud doing who knows what, playing harps and being bored out of our minds for the rest of our lives, but that even as there is so much in this world that you do not yet understand or know, how much better will the new heavens be and how much more will God call you to know him and understand him and to love him and to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth? And I just wanted to reaffirm that because that is the Christian teaching. It's the doctrine of the resurrection. And we need to understand where our hope actually rests as Christians. That it's not nebulous, it's not airy-fairy, and it's not, oh, I, I guess we'll have some kind kind of strange, immaterial existence, but that Jesus will raise us bodily even as God raised him bodily from the dead. And so I hope that helps bring some clarity to the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. If you have your Bible, I wanna encourage you to get it out, turn to 1 Corinthians 16. If you don't have one, there's probably one in the seat back in front of you, and uh, you can look on the screens as well. I have it on good authority that I preach fast, and that's because there's a lot to cover. And I, I usually don't get through as much as I would like to. But I also recognize that there are some who are trying to take notes. And so you heard on the BNN that there are sermon notes available. If uh, you go to the quick links tab online, you will find uh, sermon notes for uh, after each Sunday or a Wednesday evening. You'll find notes there to help you recap or help you understand which scriptures were used and, and remember the points. And so you can take advantage of that if you'd like. Have you ever donated money to some cause or, or at least you, you were willing to donate? You listened to the pitch of someone who wanted you to give and uh, they called you on the phone. Maybe they were asking you to give to a charity or a political campaign or something similar and then you regretted listening for the next several years because they got a hold of your phone number and continued calling you back and pressuring you. Anybody ever been there? I listened to somebody uh, a, a couple years ago. I can't remember exactly what the cause was, um, but I, I listened to them and I thought at first that it sounded worthwhile. I expressed a little bit of interest because it was, it was something that I thought, this, is, this sounds actually very good. But after I learned a little bit more, I changed my mind. I did not want to donate and I made that clear, or so I thought. But for the following months, I received many phone calls wanting to follow up and collect money. And these people were very, very good at making me feel very, very bad. In fact, they, they were good at shaming, right? They, they would call me and, and, and when I said, listen, I, I actually am not interested, the, the, the sound of disappointment in their voice, I don't know how they did it. But the sound of disappointment in their voices was palpable on the other end of the phone line. And when I I would try to express it it was a misunderstanding, I'm not actually interested. Uh, They they really knew how to try to turn the the, the screws of my heart and try to make me feel bad for not giving. And maybe you feel that way about giving to the church. And the time that we dedicate every week to taking offering. Some people think that all churches ever talk about is money. Which isn't true, but if they feel uh, pressured or, or convicted, I can see how they might feel that way. They could interpret it that way. We do talk about giving frequently. In fact, we, we uh, talk about it every week. Sometimes pastors will do entire sermon series on money, especially on generosity or stewardship, and during one such sermon, Uh, a pastor preached several consecutive Sundays on giving, and one member after the service was over commented, I'm going to be so glad when the pastor quits preaching on money and gets back to preaching the gospel. But giving is part of the gospel. In fact, it's an important part, and, and Jesus taught about money and generosity a lot And perhaps you wish that giving could be downplayed or that offering time could be less conspicuous. Maybe we could cut it a little bit shorter. And I want to just put that into perspective for you today because we've come to a passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about an offering that the Apostle Paul collected. The offering he was collecting was for the church in Jerusalem likely due to a famine and to persecution. The believers in Jerusalem were suffering and the Apostle Paul wanted the churches that he had planted among the Gentiles to be a part of relieving that suffering in the Jerusalem church. He had apparently already spoken to the Corinthian believers about this offering because 1 Corinthians 16 begins in a way that seems to assume they already had some knowledge of it. He says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So he'd already apparently told them about this offering and likely asked them to prepare to give. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul instructs them how to give, But in 2 Corinthians 8.10, Paul indicates that a year later, they hadn't yet finished giving. He says, and in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So they hadn't yet followed through on what Paul had instructed them to do. And as we'll see in a minute, Paul did not just tell them and then forget about it, but he challenged them to give and taught them how they should give. A year or more after that, so this would be two to three years after he originally wrote to them about giving, Paul was back in Corinth from where he likely wrote his letter to the Romans, and he said this in Romans 15, 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Corinth was part of a region called Achaia, and so he was likely including the Corinthian believers in, the, in those words, and so, in other words, Paul started taking an offering that took between two and three years to actually collect. That's a long offertory. You need a lot of songs to kind of fill that time, don't you? You're going to need a, a longer b and N than, than a few minutes to fill that time to collect that offering. And the interesting thing about this is that when the Corinthians failed to give because of their sinful attitudes toward Paul... Paul didn't just let it go as if it was a matter of only secondary importance that didn't really matter to the gospel. He didn't just get back to preaching the gospel. Far from it, he doubled down and wrote two whole chapters on why giving was necessary and how they ought to give to the Jerusalem church. And there's a lot that we can learn about giving from Paul's instructions. And so today we're going to cover 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, but we're not just going to focus there. We're going to examine the broader scope of what Paul had to say to and about the Corinthians and their participation in this, probably the longest offering ever taken. And the gist of the message is this. It's pretty simple. You should give. And we're going to see why and how you should give throughout today's message. Let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul wrote this letter after there had been even more tension than already existed between him and the Corinthian church, Uh, and that tension was beginning to heal because they had begun to repent. And Paul describes how the churches in Macedonia, which was a region in northern Greece and southeastern Europe, they were eager to give. He calls this, the grace of God in their lives. And he attributes their eagerness to God's grace. And I want to read this to you from verses 1 to seven, Second Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. He says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In knowledge, in all earnestness, and in in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul attributes the generosity of the Macedonian churches, their response, he, he, he attributes that to the grace of God. It was evidence that God was at work among them, and he was doing a special work in them, and made them eager to give, And he recognized that their eager and their joyful response, it wasn't natural. It couldn't just be attributed to, you know, natural human charity or generosity, but it was indeed a gift of God's grace to them, that he was working in their heart. It was God's grace expressed through them, so much so that they were willing to give out of their poverty. And this gift of God was clearly expressed because it was not Paul who asked them to participate. Instead, it says he knew of their poverty. But when they learned about the gift that Paul was organizing, they begged him to take part in it. And Paul later wrote about the kinds of gifts of, of grace that God can give to his church. And included in that list, he, he, he includes giving. Listen to Romans 12, 6 to 8. It says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes, that is, gives, in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, Paul, like I said, likely wrote the letter to the Romans from Corinth after he had traveled back to to visit that church again. And it's possible that they had listened to him and they had contributed generously and he had them in mind when he wrote that God gives people grace to contribute with generosity. But notice this, he doesn't just say, well, that's a gift of God so we'll just leave it up to them and and God gives it to some and he, he doesn't give it to others. No, instead what he does is he points to the generosity of one church and he says to another church, see that you excel in this grace also. Now we might think that that's a little crass. We shouldn't talk about how one church gives versus another church. We shouldn't talk about how one person has given with great generosity and grace versus how maybe another person has given. But Paul says, as you've seen others excel in this grace of God, make sure you excel in this grace also. I don't know about you, but I want to excel in the grace of God. And if God's word gives me a clarity, that there's something that pleases God and that I can excel in it, I want to be a part of that. I want to excel in giving to missions. I want to excel in giving to the church. I want to excel in giving to meet needs. I want to excel in generosity. Generosity is evidence of, and it is an expression of, God's grace at work in people's lives. So we should be eager to give. And when we are, we're following the grace of Jesus. And Paul encouraged the Corinthian church to do this. He says at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 8 to 9, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So not only can giving be an expression of a special grace or gift that comes from God, But it's also part of what it means to imitate Christ, the grace of Christ who gave himself as a gift for us. Jesus condescended to become like us. The eternal word of God became flesh and dwelled among us. As Paul put it in Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of men. Now you might not think that that's that's much, you might, think that's such a, might not think that's such a sacrifice because you've never been anything other than a human being, and maybe you think it's all right, it's, it's okay. But Jesus was and is the eternal Son of God, so he was not subject to pain, to shame, to temptation, to the trials and the struggles that we are. And yet in the greatest offering ever taken, he became like us, and he offered himself as the sacrificial substitute for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. And Paul says that part of how we can prove the genuineness of our love and imitate Jesus is through generous giving. 2 Corinthians 8.24 again says that meeting others' needs through giving is a proof of love. He says this, therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Now I want to be careful that I don't give the impression that you can buy God's grace nor that money can be a substitute in your life for other kinds of love. But we also don't want to skip over what Paul clearly says in order to fit a whitewashed version of grace. Grace not only forgives us, grace not only frees us from sin, grace also gives us the power to live as God desires. In fact... Grace begins to work in us the very desires of God so that we begin to desire what God desires. So if giving is a grace of God, then God will supply the needed attitude for that giving as we submit to him and we learn and grow in Christ. And when we give, we're not working to receive grace. Instead, we are living out of the grace that we've received through Christ as we learn to imitate him. I want to ask you this. When when you're asked to give, What does your attitude reveal about your response to God's grace? Do you get bent out of shape? Do you feel that it's unfair for God or for the church to ask you to give so much? When you see a fellow believer in need, when you learn of the needs of a missionary, do you grow hesitant? Do you grow protective as if you're closing your hand? Or are you eager to give what God has supplied as if you live with an open hand that says what God has given, he's given that I might be a blessing to others. What God has given is his grace to me and he's given it that his grace might flow through me as well. Do you live with an open hand because you've seen all that Christ has already accomplished for you? You should give as an act of grace and see that generosity is not your gift to God. Because Paul says actually generosity is God's grace to you. It's evidence of his grace working in your life. We get that backwards so often, don't we? We think we're doing God a big favor because we've given something. When in reality the scripture teaches this. Giving with God's heart, with cheerfulness, is actually evidence of God's grace working in you. And that's where we go next because graceful giving is also cheerful giving. Believers should not need to be pressured and not even expect overly emotional appeals in order to be ready to give. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 11 not only tell us that we should give cheerfully, but that we can give cheerfully and why we can. Remember this, Paul says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I wanna pause there for just a minute. There are a few times in scripture where things are spelled out so clearly that we would be foolhardy not to pay attention. One of these places is in Romans chapter 12 where Paul tells us how to discern the will of God. He says this, that you should renew your mind so that you will be able to discern what the will of God is, his pure, pleasing, and perfect will. So many people are running around looking to try to figure out this key, that key, other keys to, to figure out what's the will of God for my life and the Bible tells us. We renew our minds in his word and prayer by coming back to him over and over again when something is so clear we ought to pay attention. Here's something very clear. Do you want to be pleasing to God? I guess not, okay. Do you want to be pleasing to God? Well, the scripture tells us right here one way that we can please God, one thing that clearly pleases him. When we cheerfully, not just give, it doesn't say give, giving pleases God, it doesn't say that, does it? It says when you give cheerfully, when you give with a heart like God, like Jesus, that pleases God. The Lord, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. You should give cheerfully because it demonstrates that you trust God, that you believe God is able to meet your needs, and that he wants to meet the needs of others through you. Here is the law of the harvest. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The more you put in, the more you'll get out. Now we have to be careful here, again, because sometimes this language and this idea have been abused. There have been and there are many people, on TV especially and elsewhere, who will use this biblical terminology to manipulate people into giving. They will talk about sowing a seed into their ministry and how you can expect to receive back a hundredfold or a thousandfold And there is a grain of truth in what they say, which is what makes it deceitful and what makes it dangerous. God's word does use this language, and God does say that he will supply our needs so that we will abound. But often these people are growing rich off the poverty of others, which is not at all like what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage. Further, they misrepresent God's promises, if what Paul meant was that, was that you could grow rich, if you gave to his ministry and made him rich, then why would he have initially refused to take any money from the Corinthians as we know that he did from our study earlier in 1 Corinthians? Why does 1 Corinthians 4, 7 say that he worked with his own hands and suffered hunger and thirst and was poorly dressed and homeless? God does not call you to give your money so that a preacher can buy a private jet and a mansion, nor does he promise to make you rich when you give. What TV preachers never address, and I don't mean all TV preachers, I mean those who abuse this, what they fail to address is what kind of abundance God's word promises to give. Verse eight said that God's grace will abound so that you can abound in every good work. That is, you should not be afraid that if I give here, that I will be unable to be generous in other parts of my life. God will give you the grace to abound in every good work. Verse 10 says that he will increase your harvest of righteousness. Can God provide for our physical needs? Absolutely. Should we expect God to provide for our physical needs as we give? Absolutely we should. Does he make a promise to us that he will make us rich if we give? No, he does not. But does he promise to give grace and increase our harvest of righteousness? Yes, he does. And giving cheerfully produces more than just increased wealth. It means that we will experience more of God's grace so that we might be able to serve his kingdom more generously. That's the motive. That's the goal. Too often what TV preachers assert is that you should give to them so that you yourself can get rich. That kind of motive is not found in God's word. The Apostle Paul says that when you give, your motive should be, I want to bless others because God has so generously blessed me and his grace is flowing out of my life. And when you give with that kind of attitude, your heart isn't, I want to get more so that I can have more. Your heart is, I want to be able to give more. And with a heart like that, God will give you more to give. He'll increase your abundance of righteousness and the grace that he shows in your life. Then if you're a disciple of Jesus, What greater desire do you have than that God's kingdom might be advanced? That God, that that others rather, would rejoice in God and that he would be glorified? Are we just mercenaries trying to manipulate God as if he were some kind of cosmic bank in which we can invest our money and he'll pay us interest? And and, and when we loan him money, he'll, he'll give us back more? Or are we disciples who desire to follow Christ and see him glorified? This is what the Apostle Paul is speaking to. We're disciples. Listen, Christian, if you've been giving to someone who's manipulated you with promises of wealth and twisted scripture and guaranteed you riches, stop, stop today, cut it off, don't do it anymore. But don't grow hard-hearted because of it either. God does want you to give, but the desire to give should come from the grace of God and your eagerness to honor him, not the desire to manipulate him into giving you more. Verses 12 to 15 demonstrate how giving honors God. They say this, This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. words, Paul here describes the abundance and overflow of righteousness and of grace that would come from their giving. He doesn't say God's going to make you rich. He says there will be an abundance of praise poured out on God and they'll pray for you, brothers. This is the abundance of grace as Paul means it. Genuine, cheerful generosity leads to people giving thanks to and praising God. There are men and women who are praising God around the world right now because we have given. They're giving thanks to God. They're giving thanks for God's grace that it's not a dead story, but that his grace, expressed through our giving, has dug wells, provided food and clothing, built schools, remodeled buildings for housing, purchased equipment, provided Bibles, and preached the gospel. And they're giving thanks because his people have given cheerfully so that God's name could be honored, even if we receive no earthly prize for that giving? Should we not rejoice in that? Is that not God's grace abounding? Is that not his righteous harvest being brought in? When asked to give to the needs of believers or to missionaries or to the church, don't recoil as if someone were trying to take what belonged to you, but give cheerfully, not out of compulsion, because you know that God loves a cheerful Giver. Paul instructed the Corinthian church to cheerfully give to meet the needs of the Jerusalem church and that they should do it as a demonstration to, of and a response to God's grace. And it reminded them that they should give because they received spiritual blessings from the church in Jerusalem. And I think that this same principle applies today. You should give because you've received spiritual blessings. When you receive blessing, you should share material blessing. When you receive spiritual blessing, you should share material blessing. And Paul addresses this several times in his writings, both when talking specifically about this offering that he was collecting for Jerusalem and when speaking more generally. He says in Romans 15, 25 to 29, now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there for Macedonia and Achaia. These were regions, again, of Greece and southeastern Europe that included Corinth Uh, He says there that they were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ." And Paul wanted to go to Spain and he wanted to preach to those who had never before heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he made a detour. And it may seem that a mission to preach to those who had never heard was of more importance than the physical needs of those who had already heard and believed. But verse 25 says that Paul considered the gift that he was taking to Jerusalem to be so important that he delayed his mission to Spain for it. It was important for two reasons. First, He had a real concern for the needs of the believers or the saints in Jerusalem. They'd suffered much through political upheaval, through a recent famine. Many of them had left their livelihoods in other parts of Israel in order to join the church in Jerusalem, and they were in need of support and of help. Paul was also concerned to demonstrate a solidarity and unity between the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches There was a lot of tension between these two groups and formerly the Jews didn't associate with Gentiles, especially in religious matters. But now Jesus was bringing the two groups together and making them one and Paul wanted that bond to be strong. And the offering of money was an indication of their solidarity in spiritual things. They had a common share in Jesus and Paul wanted to do whatever he could to help emphasize that fellowship. And we can see a principle at work in what Paul says here. Our culture would tend to have us believe that spiritual things are just a shadow at best, that they're not real, they're not tangible. And many portray them even as as a hoax. So anytime a church or ministry asks for money, People in the culture will often scoff and act as if it's silly for someone who claims to help spiritually to ask for material assistance in that ministry. Some think that all spiritual blessings should come for free, and they really do. There is no charge to hear the gospel. Nobody demanded you pay as you came in the door today. If they did, please let me know. We'll fix that immediately. There's no charge to come and to hear the gospel. There's nothing that says you have to give or else But Paul recognizes that the Gentiles had received a benefit from the Jewish Christians. It was because of their faithfulness and their sacrifice that the Gentiles had heard the gospel and had come to faith. The good news came through the covenant of the Jews that they had with God. To put it simply, if there was no church in Jerusalem, there would have been no church in Macedonia, no church in Achaia, or any other Gentile church for that matter. And so Paul makes a simple, principled observation if you've been blessed spiritually, then you should bless material. And Paul applied this principle to, to, to churches as well as to individuals. Earlier in the letter at 1 Corinthians 9, 8 to 11, Paul made the claim that he had every right to expect material help from them even though he didn't take advantage of it. He says this, do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And Paul's point is simple, where you've received spiritual benefit, you should give material assistance. As you come to church week after week, our hope, our prayer, and our intention is that you receive spiritual blessing in ministry, through worship, through teaching, through preaching, through our children's ministry, through our youth ministry, that your family is receiving spiritual blessing. And we ask you to contribute to that ministry through tithes and offerings. And frankly, we're not ashamed of that. We want to continue to bless, and we want to, in fact, bless more people with the gospel. We want to continue glorifying God, preaching the good news, and witnessing lives that are transformed by Jesus, and we want to do that more and more effectively and more broadly than ever, and so we ask you to partner with us that you would participate in the ministry of fellowship by helping provide materially for a spiritual mission. And I'm thankful for the many faithful people in this congregation who not only give, but they give cheerfully. They're pleased to give. They have recognized the joy of taking something that can seem so earthly and so unspiritual and oftentimes gets used for very very demeaning and ugly things. Money is what I'm talking about. And putting that to use in the kingdom of God. And what I want to do on Sundays is not squeeze you for more money, but I also can't avoid when the Bible talks about money either, can I? First Corinthians 16, 1-4 talks about offering. And so I want to encourage you and teach what the Bible says about our resources and how we should use them. And it says this, you should give cheerfully as an act of grace because you've received spiritual blessings. And before we close this morning, I want to look at a couple of practicalities that 1 Corinthians 16 two and three and four teach us. And and it addresses some really down-to-earth issues. Look at verse two. It says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. On a side note, this is some of the earliest Christian evidence that uh, early Christians met on Sundays and not on Saturdays as the Jews did because he tells them to save it up on the first day of the week. In any event, we learn three key giving practices from this verse and one more from verses three to four. And the first one is this, give systematically. Paul says that you should set some money aside every week for this offering. And there is a place for spontaneous generosity, but the only way that you give shouldn't be when there is an emotional appeal to give. Be intentional in using your resources for the kingdom of God. This is why tithes and faith promises for missions uh, and how we support missionaries around the world are, are powerful tools because they provide structure to giving so that it's not just left up to our individual memories and shifting emotions, but it's a decision that we make out of obedience to God and we do it regularly. And it also assists with the second practical matter of giving which is to be organized in how we give. Paul did not want them to wait until he showed up to start collecting the offering. At 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 5, he told them it would be embarrassing if he showed up after a year of advance notice, if he showed up with representatives from other churches, and even after a year, they had not organized themselves for this offering. Imagine what it would be like if we waited until there was a crisis or a problem or an emergency to ask people to give. If we had a leak in the roof this week and we had to wait till next Sunday to ask, will you give to help us fix the leak or will you give to help us fix this problem or or fix the AC, we might have a hot Sunday a few times because we couldn't just take care of what needed to be taken care of. We might have uh, uh, water dripping on somebody's head because we couldn't just take care of what needed to be taken care of. Or what if a missionary calls and asks for emergency funds? Would it be beneficial if we had to make special appeals for each and every need? Or is it better if we have been organized in advance in our giving and that way, when they make that appeal and say, We have an emergency, we're already ready and we can be prepared to give and to respond quickly? Giving regularly organized and in advance of the need are important for us to be able to minister and to meet needs effectively you should also give proportionally first corinthians 16 2 puts it this way to do it in keeping with your income and this doesn't mean that we should never give sacrificially or out of our own need as we already read from second corinthians 9 that church in macedonia gave out of their own poverty But it does mean that cheerful giving isn't asking you to deplete yourself to make someone else wealthy. Cheerful Christian giving means receiving the grace of God, both in terms of material blessings that he has provided, as well as in the willingness to give that he provides to us, and then meeting needs as he enables. And this doesn't mean that you have to wait to see what you have left over. In fact, that's not the way to give. You shouldn't indulge all your own wants and then see if there's anything left over for God. That's sort of a a Scrooge, cheap, chintzy way to give, isn't it? But it means that you don't have to feel pressured to give what someone else does or give reluctantly because your own needs aren't met. God is able to supply your needs and will bless you to be able to participate in giving to his work. And last in this list of practicalities is that you should give with accountability. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 3-4. It says, Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me letters of introduction and sending people from each church that had contributed to this offering for Jerusalem were means of accountability and assuring those who gave that their resources were being used as intended and that they weren't just being swindled by some uh, fast-talking preacher. Accountability is really important when we give because we want to set a good example to the world and we want to ensure that our resources are being used wisely. And this is why I would caution you about giving to preachers or ministries concerning which you don't know their accountability structure. Some of them have little to no accountability. Others may have a small board that's made up of friends and other evangelists who have uh, similar murky methods to how they gain resources for their own lives. And this is one of the big responsibilities of a church, is to be accountable. It's one of the big responsibilities of the board at Bethany, Each month we review the income and the expense of the church to ensure that money's going where it is supposed to go. Not only that, but the board is accountable as well. I've mentioned to you uh, on several occasions as as I appeal to you to give in tithes and offerings that what we're doing is not checking to see who's tithed and who hasn't. In fact, I don't do that. But there is one exception to that rule. When someone is nominated to be on our board, we check to make sure that they both tithe and give to our missions giving, to missions faith promise. And we do that for a very specific reason. Because it it would seem to be a little bit funny that somebody should be a part of making decisions about the resources of the church who is not him or herself personally invested in those resources and in the mission of God's work here in the body of Christ. While my tithes have to go elsewhere, they go to our network of churches, a fellowship of churches that that we're a part of as, as this body. They don't go directly here, they do go elsewhere. My wife tithes to this church. We give to our monthly missions program and every month we give above and beyond our tithes to the church to help make up the deficit that I mentioned to you a couple months ago into which many of you are giving as well. And I tell you that not as, as if it's something that should be impressive to you, but because that's just the way that it should be, that there should be accountability and there should be buy-in from leaders. It's also part of the reason why we encourage people to give to missions through the church and not just to individuals, because when you give directly to an individual, you can't really know all the time what those resources will be used for. But as a church, the bulk of our missions goes through the Assemblies of God, which has accountability structures in place for our missionaries who have to submit budgets and reports. So we know when we give sacrificially, they're not just making a wealthy living off of what we give. Now, this all may seem a bit boring to you, like where does this fit in a Sunday morning service? But it's hard for someone like me to say to you, give cheerfully, If I cannot also say to you that you can give confidently because there's accountability in place when you give, there's a structure that ensures that your resources are spent wisely and appropriately. And at this point, you might be thinking, that was the longest offering sermon ever. But you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong about that, because I think the Apostle Paul takes the cake for the longest offering sermon ever, because his took several years to preach and to collect, but I'm glad that he dealt with what can be a very hot button issue for people uh, and, and for, for uh, uh, people to, to, to think about the church give, uh, asks them to give so much and it can, it can feel funny, it can feel like a poll and we can wonder about what's that all about. I'm glad he dealt with it in such a thorough and practical way because it helps us to understand why we should give and how we should give. And if we put all of this together, you could state it pretty simply like this. You should regularly give cheerfully as an act of grace because you've received spiritual blessings and of course if you're not yet a believer in Jesus I don't want you to leave here thinking that all we ever talk about is money we're not afraid to talk about money because it's something that we use and as people we think an awful lot about money and because God has a lot to say about these things in our lives Because he wants our hearts and our thoughts to be all about him. And so if we're thinking about money in the wrong way, it means that we're being led away from God. If we're thinking about it in terms of his purposes and his kingdom, then we're being led closer to God. And so, yeah, we talk about money. But you just happened to show up on a Sunday morning where we're working our way through a book, and this passage was on an offering. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and you landed on this passage about money this morning but I'm not trying to pressure you into giving. In fact, if you are our guest this morning, don't feel pressured to give at all. In fact, don't give, that's fine. What we want you to hear is this, not that we need you to give us something, but we want you to hear this very clearly, that God has given you something, that God has offered you something first. In fact, the idea of giving to the church is just like the idea of God's love in many ways. It parallels it. The Bible tells us this about God's love. It says this, it's not that we loved him first, but that he first loved us. And in the same way with giving, it's not that we first gave to him as if we could buy salvation from him, but that he first gave to us. He bought salvation for us. Like the Bible says this, it puts it even in these terms that that maybe some people think of as as a little bit crass but are, are very easy to understand at least. It says this, you were bought with a price. And that price was Jesus. Jesus, the eternal son of God, who is God. He was and he is and he is to come. He became flesh. And we read in Philippians chapter two that he became like us He became human, and he even took on the form of a servant so that we could know him, and he died for our sin. In fact, Philippians 2, 9 to 10 declares this, that after Jesus had died for our sin, it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So what I want you to hear very clearly this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus already, perhaps you've come and and your greatest fear is all churches want, all pastors want is money and you feel like your greatest fear has been confirmed this morning. Listen, don't give us a dime, that's fine. What I want you to hear this morning is this, God gave before you gave anything. In fact, you might have been thinking to yourself that God really needs you on his team. Or maybe you've even thought to yourself that you could earn your salvation in some way, that maybe if you showed up to church enough times or maybe if you prayed enough prayers or perhaps even if you gave money enough that you would earn something from God. But the reality of the matter is this, you will never earn anything from God. He owes you nothing. He's your creator. He made you to know him and to love him. And if anything, the only thing he owes you is judgment because you've rebelled against him and and you've sinned against him. So he owes you justice, and that justice would look like this. you'd be cut off from him because he's perfect, he's good and he's holy, and you'd be separated from him forever and since he's the author of everything that is good, what you would be left with is everything that is bad. you'd be left with what the Bible describes as hell you'd be left with just turning inward on yourself for all eternity and your selfishness and your smallness. And you'd never know the beauty, the bigness of God. But God was not satisfied with that. In fact, he loved you so much that he gave to you first. And he gave you his son, Jesus, took your place when he died on the cross. And on the third day after Jesus was buried, God raised him from the dead to demonstrate that if you will trust him, you can have new life in him. And this morning, what I want to ask you to do is not to give, but that you would receive. That you would receive from the Lord what he has already given to you the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, that means that you would put your faith in him, that you would put your hope in him, and that you would surrender your life to him. It means that you would stop trying to find a way to save yourself and you would just confess with your lips and with your life that Jesus is Lord and that you would begin to live from him instead of against him. Today, if that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to do something very simple. If everyone would just close their eyes for a moment, because this, this is something I want you to do as an act of faith, and I want you to do it as a confession of your faith before God. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, and today you want that, you wanna know the forgiveness of your sins, you wanna know the hope, the purpose, the grace that he brings into life, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple to start with. Would you just lift up your hand to indicate that you want to know that grace and that forgiveness in your life? That you don't yet have a relationship with God, but you want to begin that this morning. Thank you, sir. Is there anybody else you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, and you want to begin that this morning? Is there anybody else like that? If you're joining us online and you want to respond, you can just text the word hope to 413-413. We'll respond to you and we'll start that conversation with you about how you put your faith in Jesus. Is there anybody else here you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus and you want to begin this morning? We're going to pray, and I want to emphasize to you that this prayer doesn't save you, it's not magic words or anything like that. I just wanna help you express your faith and your trust in Jesus. In the moment when the service is over, there'll be a few people that will be here at the front of the sanctuary, and I would encourage you to come speak with one of them. They're prayer partners, and they uh, would love to pray with you. We have a small book we'd like to give to you to help you understand what does it mean to believe in Jesus and to begin to follow him. We wanna help you to know that you're now part of a family and we wanna help you to grow in Christ. But if you raised your hand or you wish you would have, Would you make the prayer that I pray right now your own prayer and would you confess that Jesus is your Lord this morning? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name I come to you and I recognize that I'm a sinner and I am in need of your grace. Lord, I know that I've run from you and and I've rebelled against you and I understand today that you don't owe me anything but that because you love me, you sent your son Jesus as an offering. Today, Lord, I, I know that I can't do anything to deserve your grace but I receive your gift anyway. I pray that you would forgive me. I ask, Lord, that you would remove my guilt and my shame, and I pray that you'd make me new in Jesus. I believe that he died for me, and I believe that you raised him from the dead on the third day, and I trust him for my salvation. I believe him for my life today. And Lord, from now on, I want to follow Jesus. Would you lead me in how to do that? It's in Jesus' name I pray. I believe. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you for being here this morning. Again, if you raised your hand or you wish you would have. When the service ends in just a moment, our prayer partners will be here at the front. Please come and speak to one of them and pray with them. We would love to help you understand where do you go from here. Otherwise, I want to wish you grace and peace in your life through Jesus. And I want to encourage you that you would continue to be regular, cheerful, cheerful givers, knowing that it is God who first gave to you and that it is his grace at work in you that allows you to give with joy and to be pleasing to God as you give. Heavenly Father, we thank you as a church that you have blessed us tremendously in so many different ways. And Lord, I thank you for the one of the ways you blessed us is with many people who understand the great grace of God and how it is that they can give generously. Lord, I pray that you would fill them with a sense of your joy today and that they would reap that harvest of righteousness. And I pray for those who have not yet experienced what it means to give with generosity and cheerfulness. I pray, Lord, that you'd begin to work your grace in their lives, encouraging them that they too can excel in the grace of God through giving. And I pray, Lord, that together as a church, we would much more excel in the grace of God in our giving, in our generosity, in our missions, and in the preaching of the good news as you give us the grace to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. We will see you again on Wednesday for our prayer service. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.